Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like pride, hang gliders and trainers. Oh, trainers, the politics of trainers. We talked about that in a recent episode, but for today we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of fire is in fact all about communication in Tudor England, or that the history of slime is in fact all about the Industrial Revolution. And that was in fact one of our first episodes in our homeschooling history series. It was. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown 3.0. We are social distancing. He's across town. But nonetheless, he is ably helping me co-pilot this episode. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis, off of the telly. Hello, Sam. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of our special series, Homeschooling for Kids and Adults. Of course, lots of you adults out there I know are enjoying it. In each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today, this is an absolute cracker, we're doing the history of leaving home. We're going to be talking about this in relation to the Viking invasions of the British Isles. But before we do that, we're going to uh, do a bit of brainstorming about how else we might think about leaving home. James? Do you know, as a youngster, I never wanted to leave home. I was <laughs> deeply troubled about the idea of leaving home. Mm. Uh, I think it was because I'd, I'd never been away to school or anything like that. Um, do you mean running away so, or do you mean leaving home in a more kind of measured No, way? like literally, literally leaving the parental nest was something yeah. that I found, you know, maybe that says something about me as a sort of... Yeah, you know, as a sort of um, as a teenager. But anyway, it got me thinking about um, going off to university and and children leaving throughout history, children leaving home to go elsewhere, whether it be to go to school, whether it be to go on trips, on holiday, whether it be to go to university. And we have a whole collection of letters from mothers and fathers to sons at university throughout history. And I looked at some of this in one of my first books on Tudor women letter writers. And one of the best examples that I came across was a letter from a woman called Lady Gower to her son Thomas, who was an undergraduate at, then at Oxford University at Wadham College. And one of the most fascinating things about this was that this letter was discovered in the early 19th century, hidden under a floorboard, and get this, this is a letter dating from 1616, so more than 200 years earlier. A sort of careless student had been reading his mother's letter, obviously hadn't thought very much of it, and then it had dropped between the cracks of his wooden floorboards, only to be discovered centuries later uh, by, the, by, by the college. And the, the mother writes, Tom, I am so fearful of you now being far from me, that your young years should forget your maker, in other words, God, so it's a very religious letter, uh, which hath been so beneficial unto you, I charge you to continue with your daily prayers unto him for the increase of them, and always acknowledge whence they came. 
I writ to you in my last letter that you should send me word whether you heard from your grandmother or whether you writ to her since your being at Oxford, and you sent me no word at all. So she's, she's chastening him here. I have no news to send you, but this Saturday before Christmas Day, Whitpee's son killed Ducket in Ducket's son in the field, and there was extreme great pride, and God hath justly punished them, for the one is dead, and the other is fled his country, in other words, his county, and is undone. Therefore I charge you to beware of this sin and to pray against it. So don't be proud and get into a fight with somebody and kill them, in other words. Um, wow. Show your cousin Davitt when you see him these lines underneath. Tell him that I would not have been a broker for no man living but myself. I did it from his own mouth and to do him a kindness, and now my word is baffled. I wish him as much as his own kind heart should desire, but Yorkshire will not afford it. I pray you remember me very kindly to your Uncle Harrington. So and then there's a little message that she leaves for for the, the, the cousin Daffith below. But that, there we are. We've got a sort of little time capsule of a mother writing to a son who's left home. And that's just one example of leaving home. There's also people who go off to war and think about the countless letters and from the First World War written home uh, from troops on the front uh, to their loved ones at home that describe life in the trenches and also think about the you know about the grand tour the grand tour is not simply about men with fast cars roaring around europe the grand tour is in the 18th century when young men uh, who finished university would complete their education by a tour around europe's capitals so a cultural tour often with a tutor that accompanied them so there we are sam leaving home yeah, I've found some wonderful examples. I particularly found one. Um, someone's written a paper on leaving home in the 19th century England and Wales. Um, and they've done a kind of clever geographical analysis of this. So if you're wondering how you might study leaving home, this is a seriously impressive way of doing it. What they've done is they've taken the um, census enumerators books. This is from the, the 1881 census. So trying to working out who is in the country and where everyone lives. Because that gives the name, age, marital status, relationship to the head of the household, occupation and place of birth of almost 30 million people. And so they simply used um, a kind of a modern geocoding system to match up the geographical positions of where people were born and then where they were recorded in uh, 1881 and also their date of birth um, and their, their age. So they've ended up being able to plot how and when, and then look at the kind of the local conditions of what was driving people to leave. Absolutely fascinating. And they discovered that um, uh, it was it was possible to identify the various variables um, that were influencing people leaving home. There was a prevalence of farm service and industrial employment, most strongly related to leaving leaving home. And the age of leaving home, they discovered, tended to be quite high, where people were working in factories and it was quite low where people were working in farms those are just some of the uh, the fascinating things that they discovered i thought it was a really really clever bit of research um and also james whilst we're all in lockdown at the moment i suddenly thought about the opposite of leaving home and being stuck <laughs> at home and you could you could do the history Brilliant. of house arrest 
which is which is absolutely fascinating in its own way. One of the most famous people to be uh, put under house arrest was Galileo Galilei, Italian astronomer, physicist, pro-engineer and polymath, uh, lived in Pisa. And he was um, prosecuted for his belief in heliocentrism which is an understanding of the astronomical world in which the Earth and the planets revolve around the sun rather than, uh, rather than the other way around, which is essentially what the church believed. And so he was um, uh, uh, tried by the Roman Catholic Inquisition in 1615, which concluded that uh, his belief in heliocentrism was foolish and absurd in philosophy and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of holy scripture. Um, This sentence being handed down, Galileo is then put under house arrest until he dies, until 1642. Um, So that's a really good 17th century example. There are all sorts of other ones. Um, Really interesting one um, from Korea in the early 20th century. So Korea has been annexed by Japan. And the last sovereign of the Korean Empire, a guy called Sun Jong, is confined to house arrest, um, again, like Galileo, until he dies 16 years later. Um, all sorts of other examples um, from modern times and, and 90s. Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar, uh, which was once Burma, she's placed under house arrest um, by the by Myanmar's military government for uh, 15 years out of 21. And you can go back and you can find examples uh, back to the Roman Empire. So there you go, James. Um, you can do the history of house arrest, which I think is worth thinking about in lockdown when we can't leave home. <laughs> it definitely is. And I've just had a brainwave, Sam. We should do Mary, Queen of Scots and make it about house arrest. She, of course, when she was kicked out of Scotland, where she was queen, had to go down to England and was sort of bumped around various aristocratic houses to keep her, her safe and to stop people sort of clustering round her and um, and setting off a, a sort of an attempt, a coup to put her on the throne. So we should do Mary, Queen of Scots and house arrest. Absolutely. But today we're going to be doing Leaving Home in relation to the Vikings, particularly seen from the perspective of the Viking invasions of the British Isles. I'm going to start with a couple of accounts of what it was like or how it was how it how it felt being um, being uh, on the in the British Isles when this was all happening. Um, in 793, the scholar and clergyman Alcuin of York wrote to King Ethelred, who was king of Northumbria, and he describes the Viking raid on the monastery in Lindisfarne. Lo, it is nearly 350 years that we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land, and never before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold, the church of St Cuthbert spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain, is given as a prey to pagan peoples. Now the same guy wrote another letter to the Bishop of Lindisfarne himself. Similar similar, uh, style here. The calamity of your tribulation saddens me greatly every day, though I am absent. When the pagans desecrated the sanctuaries of God and poured out the blood of saints around the altar, laid waste the house of our hope, trampled on the bodies of saints in the temple of God like dung in the street. What assurance is there for the churches of Britain if St Cuthbert with so great a number of saints defends not its own? 
Either this is the beginning of greater tribulation, or else the sins of the inhabitants have called it upon them. Truly, it has not happened by chance, but is a sign that it was well merited by someone. But now you who are left stand manfully, fight bravely, defend the camp of God. And finally, last one here. This is from a chronicler working from a lost version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And he's writing in the same year the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is written. In the same year, the pagans from the northern regions came with a naval force to Britain like stinging hornets, spread on all sides like fearful wolves, robbed, tore and slaughtered not only beasts of burden, sheep and oxen, but even priests and deacons and companies of monks and nuns. And they came to the church of Lindisfarne, laid everything waste with grievous plundering, trampled the holy places with polluted steps, dug up the altars and seized all the treasures of the holy church. They killed some of the brothers took some away with them in fetters, many they drove out naked and loaded with insults, some they drowned in the sea. That's by Simeon of Durham. So what we've got here is Christian writers naturally expressing Viking raids in really apocalyptic terms, focusing on the ferocity and the destruction of the Viking activities. And I think the point is, to finish off here, is when you're trying to understand a large group of people moving home, moving around the world, whether they're Vikings or whether they're contemporary refugees, say, you need to be very careful indeed about how you think about their motivations. You need to ask yourself who is doing the describing and why. Well, there you are, James, a little introduction to the Vikings leaving home. Oh, I think that's a very good introduction, Sam. Um, I think that to just sort of reinforce that, I think that it's it's very true that what we get is a lot of these very sort of vivid and violent descriptions of the Vikings have actually influenced how historians have approached the Vikings, that we often see them as these sort of violent raiders. But actually, the term Viking has changed meaning over time. Now, originally, it came from a language called Old Norse, and it meant robbers, or, more specifically, a pirate raid. And it was used to describe coastal raiders. Now, people who went off raiding in ships were said to be going Viking. Uh, but not all Vikings were bloodthirsty warriors, as we've had described by these various ecclesiastics. They were also traders as well as raiders. Now, some of them, of course, came to fight and some of them came to plunder and were after the wealth that was in these monasteries. But others also came peacefully uh, to settle. You know, Vikings were also farmers and they kept animals and they also grew crops so they were interested in the land and settling down and they are also a people who were skillful at crafting they made beautiful wood carvings they were skilled in metalwork and they sailed the seas as traders to buy silks and spices and silver and wine and jewelry glass and pottery and we have some beautiful glass beads and they went out trading this and bringing it back to their homes. Now, more recently, the term Viking has recognised all of these broad activities and the term Viking has come to denote a people who lived in Scandinavia, so what is modern-day Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And the term Viking was not actually widely used at the time by contemporaries. In fact, it only appears four times before 1066, 
uh, and in the most comprehensive source of the time, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and only in its native English form of Vikinga, spelt W-I-C-I-N-G-A. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was not used in other countries who suffered raids where the Vikings' religious beliefs led them to being dismissed as pagans or heathens. In Ireland, they were Gael, simply meaning foreigners. And elsewhere, they were referred to by their geographical origin. So not as Vikings, but as Norsemen from the north or Danes from the south. And Scandinavians thought of themselves in different ways. So they didn't think of themselves as Vikings. They saw themselves much more regionally associated with particular areas, such as Jutland in the south or Hordaland in the west. And in fact, some linguists, people who study the history of language, argue that the word Viking originates from the word Vic, or the name for a wick, or a, in other words, a bay. And it's thought to refer to a very specific area of southeast Norway around the Oslo Fjord and the inland coastal region. But setting aside all of these complexities, these were people who spoke the same language, in other words, Old Norse. They shared many aspects of a vibrant, complex and common culture, and what we can say, therefore, is that the Vikings were a unique and distinctive people who originated in Scandinavia, but who sent out men and women far beyond their boundaries, and this is where the connection with leaving home is, to violently rob, extort and conquer, but also to peacefully trade, settle and farm. In other words, the Vikings were far more than violent marauders. They were warriors, sailors, inventors, mystics, merchants, farmers, fishermen, explorers, ambassadors, diplomats, craftsmen, musicians, poets, wives, mothers, husbands, fathers and children. And they changed the world that they lived in and shaped the world as we know it today. So there we are, Sam. Viking is a very complex term there. But you're going to tell us now about where and when they invaded. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's important to kind of think about this in a broad term because the nature of the Viking invasions and attacks changed. That's the key thing you need to know about if you're thinking about the Vikings. So it started with the first recorded raid. It doesn't necessarily mean it was the first one. Um, it was around, it was 787. Um, it was recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as being in that year, but it could well have been earlier. And that was the beginning of a, of a fierce struggle between the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. Um, remember, the Vikings are pagans, they're not Christians, and they begin by um, attacking Christian monasteries, like those accounts of uh, the attack on Lindisfarne I began with. 
The monasteries are easy targets. The monks don't have any weapons. The buildings are stuffed with valuable treasures, gold, jewels, books. And there's also food, drink, cattle, clothes, everything you need to sustain a population in a remote location. So very tempting indeed for a Viking raider. So you start off with these Viking raids, these these lightning attacks, and often they disappear again. This all changed in 865, very important year, when a great Viking army sails across the North Sea. And these guys are different because they've come to conquer rather than to raid. They've come to get land and to stay rather than just to steal. And over several years, this army battles through the north of England. They take control of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Northumbria, East Anglia and most of Mercia uh, by 874, almost all of these kingdoms have fallen to the Vikings. All of them, except apart from Wessex, which is ruled by Alfred the Great. So Alfred fights the Vikings. He does defeat them in battle, but he's not able to drive them out of Britain. And after years of fighting, uh, the Vikings and Alfred make a peaceful agreement, um, even though fighting does carry on. And what they do is they, they draw a, a kind of an imaginary dividing line which runs across England from London in the south towards Chester in the northwest. The Anglo-Saxon lands are to the west and the south and the Viking lands called the Danelaw are roughly to the east of this line. More and more Vikings then came over and settled in the Danelaw. But also you've got Vikings settling in Scotland um, and on the Shetland and the Orkney Islands. You've got Vikings on the Isle of Man over in the Irish Sea and also in Ireland. Um, they founded, among many other things, the uh, wonderful city of Dublin. So there you are. Um, they, they, they come across in different waves. But by the uh, last quarter of the ninth century, they're starting to settle and they do it very, very effectively indeed. Oh, super, Sam. Now, what I'm going to talk about now is some of the factors that actually led the Vikings to leave their own territories and to go out and to explore other areas, either as, as raiders or as, as, as traders or, or indeed more peaceful settlers and farmers. Now, one of the first things I think has become really clear is that some of the impetus for wanting to leave home is for wealth and it's loot and plunder. We can't get away from that. And what I think happens is that the Vikings are trading around, which means that they have very good local knowledge of where the lucrative trade centres are, where the wealth is. And so that enables them to have the information that they then need to target these very rich religious sites like Lindisfarne, as we've talked about, but also um, Monk Wearmouth Jarrow Abbey, for example, uh, which was the home of the Venerable Bede, one of the sort of most famous uh, early chroniclers and sort of historians um, of the of of England. And so they target those areas because, as Sam said. They are not well defended and they're full of all sorts of riches. Riches, importantly, that are portable, so they're movable. They can take them away with them. So that's the first thing. They're after loot and wealth. They're after plunder. The second thing that we need to think about is what is happening in the area that they're coming from. There is poverty and there's overpopulation. And so 
Raids and wealth is not all of the story, but they also need land, land to farm, especially along the western seaboard of Norway, where really good, really fertile land is pretty scarce. And what you've got is a range of people, mercenaries, traders, younger sons, who can't find a living at home because there isn't land available for them. And what they see is actually the option of becoming colonists, the going out and occupying the land that the raiders are raiding, becomes a really good option for them. So that's the second thing. It's basically that land is overcrowded and in short supply, so you go elsewhere and you find land. The third thing to think about is actually something that is an enabling factor. And what I mean by this is you need, if you're going to other places, you need to be able to travel. And I think the third thing then is about the technological advances that encourage and enable the Vikings to travel. And here we're thinking about the brilliant ships, uh, which have been described as the supersonic sort of stealth bombers of their time, the long ships that we see in places in the archaeological finds of the Osberg ship, um, which was built in 820, um, and other ships of that sort of kind that Sam knows an awful lot about. Um, these ships were a, a simple sort of ship design. They were powered by oars and a single sail. They were open deck. They were double-ended, uh, which basically means they didn't have a prow or a stern distinguishable by design, which actually made meant them meant that they were very impressive um, in terms of how they could navigate up fairly sort of difficult um, water. They could travel up rivers. Um, so we've got that. Then we've got the superior um, technology of the ships that they've got. There's also thinking about fourthly. Another thing is the environmental factors, the climate and weather. And we know that in addition to the, the sort of brilliance of these boat builders, the climate is improving, which leads to calmer seas and fewer storms. And this means that they can actually travel further distances. And archaeologists know this because of various sort of things that they've been doing. One is that if you slice a tree trunk, you can actually look at the rings and you look at the size of rings, which is the annual growth, and thick rings are in good years and thin rings are in bad years, and you're able to see where those fell within the cycle. So archaeologists have basically been able to show the way in which good weather was actually facilitating these kinds of adventures of the Vikings. So we know that the summers were getting warmer. We also know that there was favourable wind as well um, that was that was that blew westwards, um, which would basically take the Vikings into the Scottish Islands and into uh, into England. Um, we also finally, and this is an important point, there are also political things happening on where the area that we now refer to as Europe, uh, the area that we now refer to as France, which is Francia and the Franks, um, Charlemagne uh, became the ruler there. 
and Charlemagne was very much a Christian ruler. And what's interesting is his attitude towards pagans. Uh, the papacy absolutely love him because what he's doing is as he goes in and takes over particular areas, he uses the practice of forcing people to be baptised um, as Christians as a way of exerting his political dominance. And there's a brilliant example in 782 where his armies forcibly baptised and then executed four and a half thousand Saxon captives in Verdun on the banks of the river Aller. And so there's a sense in which the Vikings are actually really worried as a pagan group. They're worried about what Charlemagne is going to do for them. And historians have argued that actually these raids were a preemptive strike and in a way, you can't necessarily take on a large army like Charlemagne directly. You don't want to wait for him to come. And an argument has been put forward that, in fact, some of the initial raids and military campaigns were actually picking off the soft targets of the of Charlemagne's empire uh, and of a sort of of a sort of extended Christendom. Uh, which is a very sort of broad term, but basically means uh, the entire Christian world. So there we are, Sam. Uh, a whole range of reasons that led to the Vikings um, leaving home, as it were. Yeah, I, really, really interesting stuff. Let's let's do a quiz to see if anyone's been listening. Have you been paying attention? First up, who were the Vikings? Oh, that's a that's actually a, quite an easy one, and also <laughs> a difficult one. It's very um, difficult, actually. <laughs> question two: In what year? Did the Vikings first invade the monastery at Lindisfarne? Number three, where and when did the Vikings invade? Oh, that's a good one. Number four, what are the best sources for studying the Viking invasions? Number five, how important were Viking ships in enabling them to invade? And lastly, number six, why did the Vikings invade? Mm, some good broad questions there. And do we have a little task for anyone who needs something to do? We do. We do. We, we in fact, have two tasks. Um, the first is... That is what run we... away from home. Is not <laughs> run away from home. No, no, no. No, no, no. You shouldn't, you shouldn't run away from home. Certainly not at the moment. But two two tasks. The first is... A invade ma- another country. Not invade another country. <laughs> you can pretend. Um, and, and nor do we want you to dress up as a, as a Viking, although that might be quite fun. The first task is to draw a map of the Viking invasions with dates and arrows for the territories they invaded. So where they came from and where they went to and and the dates. And the second is to make a Viking longboat. So a sort of arts and crafts uh, project there for you. Make a Viking longboat. And if you do, take a photograph of it and post it uh, on social media to us. Yeah, we'd love to see those guys. I hope you've been enjoying these. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. It was very good. Very interesting leaving home. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, so you can follow us there. And we also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, with a new interface, a new tab that allows you to see all of our homeschooling episodes organised by chronological period so 
medieval, early modern, modern and 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 ancient as well. It looks We've got to do good. a few more ancient ones, I think, though, James. Yes, definitely. We do, we do. Um, that's it, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Bye, guys. <laughs>